Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so um, today we'll finish this stuff up and then I'll do a little bit of review uh, and talk a bit about the test that's coming up. So, I was talking about how would an animal know, or how, well, not that so much, how would we know what an animal is thinking? With people, and I mentioned, I think, when we talked about stuff with infants and such, that with normal adults, I can ask you a question and you can give me an answer. That's pretty simple. I can design an experiment where you tell me what words you remember. That's easy. With, say, infants or uh, with non-human animals, we can't do that. So we have to come up with a way of being... We have to come up with very clever ways to determine things like, is the animal thinking, I should peck the green key? Or is it thinking, I saw a green key? So it's prospective encoding. That's, I will do this. Or retrospective, I saw that. Now, you might think to yourself, how in the hell could one do such a thing? It's an exceedingly complex... It is, and this is an exceedingly clever experiment. Herb Reutblatt did this 1980. This was actually his um, PhD thesis, if I'm not mistaken. So he was using symbolic matching, which I talked about. And here's the setup. So if we have a red sample... So this, these are pigeons. And they're presented... So there's a Skinner box that has three keys, three, three discs, okay? Um, so if we get a red sample, the animal then would get a choice, let's say, between, after it's seen this, then it goes out, between, let's see, the horizontal line is red, and a bird. So if it's supposed to, if it pecks this, it's food, if it pecks this, doesn't it? It's pretty simple. Okay? So if it's red, horizontal, orange, vertical, blue, almost vertical. The almost vertical one looks like that. Okay. Much more closer to vertical than horizontal. Okay. Does it, do you understand the experiment so far? So the preparation makes some sense. All right. If the choices are one and two, in other words, if they make mistakes when the situation is they get a red sample, okay? But the, yeah, just, just like this, actually, we're the If they make mistakes here, they must be encoding retrospectively. They must be thinking back. Why? Because it's much easier to confuse red and orange than it is to confuse vertical and horizontal. They can't be encoding what's well, unlikely that they would be encoding prospectively because it's like they're not going to make a mistake discriminating between horizontal and vertical. On the other hand, if the choices are, um, so if they make choice one and two, however, if they make choice, uh, mistakes when the choices are two and three, so we have an orange sample. Oh, there. And then we get a vertical line and an almost vertical line. Then they must be encoding prospectively. 
because if they were doing it retrospectively, orange and blue are really, really different. And they're not just different to you and me, they're also different to pigeons. There's a whole, I am not going into the psychophysics of bird color vision. Which is something I actually said in my PhD work. <laughs> and I said much more snarkily. <laughs> Do you understand this experiment? Because it's exceedingly clever. But I want you to understand it, so ask questions again. You see why? If they make mistakes here, they must be decoding retrospectively, because they're, that means they're thinking back and confusing red, this is red, and orange. That's easy to make a mistake. It's hard to make a mistake this way. On the other hand, here they must be encoding prospectively, because orange and blue, that's symbolically linked to blue, are way different, whereas vertical and almost vertical are, well, one has the word almost already in it. Isn't that clever? It's exceedingly clever. It's exceedingly clever. It's also exceedingly subtle. So if you have any questions about it, please ask them. Does it make sense? When? What does encoding prospectively mean? Prospectively means they're thinking, what should I do? When the, when the choice comes up. And retrospectively means, what did I see before? So what should I do? That's prospectively. Retrospectively is, what did I see? Does it make sense? Yeah. Some will think both ways. What did I see and what should I see? Well, I mean, but that wouldn't be very efficient, would it? And well, you'd expect it to be the most efficient as possible. Yeah. And you would also expect it, well, I would expect at least, that there wouldn't be any individual differences. They, they would all do this roughly the same way. Okay, question, does it make sense? Because <clears throat> it's very clever. And how would one would get it, this, I still am amazed at this experiment. And every time I see her breakline, I tell them how cool it was. Even though this was, you know, 30 years it's still pretty cool. He's always at this conference I go to in Florida in March, except he's at the University of Hawaii, so it's a step down for him to come to the conference. The rest of us like, whoa, it's warm. He's like, I live in Hawaii. You know, but this is really clever. So what do they do? That's the question, right? Well, the neat thing is they do it dynamically. If, when you have short retention intervals, the shorter the retention interval between the presentation of the sample and the choices, the more likely they are to be using retrospective encoding. When the, the, the longer you pull the retention interval out, the more likely they are to switch over and use prospective encoding. Because, well, think about it. That actually makes a lot of sense. Remembering back what you saw is going to start to decay with time. So why not switch over and encode prospective? And that's over matters of seconds, by the way. This, this kind of thing is not the easiest thing in the world for pigeons to do. So we're talking over like five, six seconds, they switch over to those. Very cool. So you can actually ask really subtle and really deep, really, questions about how animals encode things without them being able to speak. Right? We're looking at how they represent the world. 
Questions? Okay. So I'm just going to talk about generally some very cool, what I think are pretty cool paradigms for studying animal memory. Um, oh, that's good. No, I didn't talk about that. Oh, that's because it's in the learning class. Uh, the inner radial maze is a, a maze that has eight arms, hence the name, that radiate out from the central platform like the spokes of a wheel, as it says in Bolton and Samuelson. And you put the rat on the, in the middle, and you put food on the arms, and then the rat's task is to go down the arms and, and, and get food, but not repeat what it did, because if they repeat it, they're, they're wasting their time. Now, I know what I would do. I would start at the top and go around the, go clockwise or counterclockwise. I think I'd go clockwise. It just seems right somehow. Done. But that, that's not what they do. They go in a haphazard fashion. But you know what? After like five or six times doing this, of their first eight choices, seven are correct. They don't make mistakes. Probably this is, this is partially because, you know, you know how rats actually live in the world? They live in a central den with tunnels heading out. It actually, they locked onto something that ecologically makes sense for a rat. That said, this maze has been tried with almost any species you can name that could move has been, this has been tried. You try birds, try fish, make it into a fish tank. All kinds of different species. A people. Now, it's hard to do with people. You think, well, what do you do? We've got to disorient people between choices. And I mentioned Suzuki et al., uh, which we didn't talk about because I lifted this from my learning class. So. Uh, but Suzuki et al. found that what are the animals here? Again, what are they encoding? Well, what they're actually remembering is. You always have cues up on the wall. You hang things on the wall in the, in the, in the lab. So the rats can get like a map-like representation of the world. They're called landmarks. And in fact, what the animals learn is the relationship of the food locations to the landmarks and the landmarks to each other. So we have a triangle here, and a square here, and a circle here, whatever. And actually, typically what they are are you bring in posters and stuff. Just crap that you find, you hang it on the wall. Right? And they aren't just remembering this arm here goes with square. They're remembering this arm here goes with square and it's just to the left of triangle and to the right. Sorry, to the right of triangle and to the left of circle. It's not just the individual items, it's the items and the relationship to each other. Yeah, it's a spatial, exactly, spatial relationships that they're remembering. Which is really neat. <clears throat> and that's not just rats. That's basically every animal does that. And again, that just makes sense. Out in the world, do, you, do we remember things based on when you're out navigating the world? Right? If somehow you went outside, a, let's say, at a class over at the, the bio building, and I don't know, a clever experimenter with a lot of money moved the building. You would start walking towards where the building's supposed to be, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go, oh, it's over there. That's fine, I'll go over there across Queen Street now. They moved it. You would start walking out towards the GLC, blah, blah, blah. Right? We do things by spatial relationship to things to each other. So sometimes you do it by rope. Oh, sure, and that's usually when something has become so 
Edward Tolman talked about this, when, uh, who was probably the first head of study station memory in RAS back in the 30s and 40s. When we have done something so much, we actually do it based on, we don't really need the map anymore. When I moved, I used to drive to my old house. Of course. <laughs> yeah. When we first moved back to Sault Ste. Marie, I remember the number of times that I, and I mean, we lived in that house for a year in 1997, 98. And when we moved back here, I still made the mistake of going there one day on my bike. I was like, that's not right. <laughs> uh, and I also remember when I came back here in 2004, and I left in 1998, I kept trying to walk to my old office, except that it was in a portable and that building was gone. And we walked and go, all oh, right. That was the 90s when I had a ponytail. <laughs> um, and wore motorcycle boots. For it was a style at the time. So, or I mean, I visit my, my, the house I grew up in, which was now my sister's house, but when I go upstairs in her house to, like, I don't know, go to the bathroom, I instinctively walk into my nephew's bedroom. And I go, oh, right, this isn't my room anymore. Why didn't you turn this into some sort of shrine? But <laughs> you do that, right? It's really strange. It's really, really, really strange. And when I would, we would visit there, when I was in the house of when I was in grad school, I would often walk upstairs and instead of walking into the guest room where I was now staying, I would be walking into my sister's room. What are you doing? Oh, right. This is your room. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I still do that to this day, you know. Um, rats actually chunk. This is neat. We talked about chunking in human stuff, right? We talked about a lot about you want to have phone numbers and that. What McCuda and Roberts did in 1997 is they found, they had a, a maze like this, radio maze, except it had, I think, 12 arms. Yeah. It had three chocolate chip arms, <coughs> three cheese arms, three, they were actually arms made of those things. That's the food game. Because um, that would be some sort of, I think, health problem. Um, uh, three uh, uh, food pellet arms and three empty arms. Okay? Now, for the rats, where those different foods were in different places each day, uh, except for the three empty arms. So three empty arms are always constant, but the other food changed around. It took them longer to learn than when the animals, the, the, the rats that had the chocolate, cheese, and food pellets in the same place. In other words, what, it, it shows that it helped learning. So that's the first thing. It's like, well, that helps learning. It's fine. But what about, how do we know it's chunking? Well, let's replace chocolate with, like, just swap, swap them around. So now the chocolate ones are empty and the food pellet ones are cheese and all vice versa. What's the animal? By the way, all rats like chocolate more than anything. Okay, chocolate is first, and then it's cheese, and then it's food pellets. These food pellets, well, probably the most nutritious, don't taste very good. I've eaten one, just for the hell of it. <laughs> They're 45 milligrams, not that number. Hungry. Right, rats, like, they got this. Oh, these aren't very good. Um, I ate a mealworm once. The first we fed the chickadees too. No, it's like why not? This is what the hell. I'd never do it again. Um, <laughs> I thought I was shot down behind enemy lines or something. It just seems unlikely, as I'm not in the military and I'm on fly airplanes. Uh, it could happen. It's possible. So anyway, um, you switch them around, and what happens is they'll go to what they thought was the chocolate arms, but they're empty. And they immediately, the cool thing is, they try another set of arms. Is this the chocolate arms? Then they find, let's say, the chocolate arms in there, they were the old empty arms, then they empty the three chocolate arms. They're obviously chunking. Very cool. 
It makes sense, right? You would expect that that kind of generality would, exist, would go across species. You're right to forget is the phenomenon of human memory, where I can ask, I can tell you, forget or remember. So I give you a word and I say, forget. And I give you a word and I say, remember. And you remember, and then of course sometimes I test you to see if, then I test to see which words you remember, and you remember the, the remember items way better than the forget items. You remember some of the forget items, but you remember the ones that I tell you to remember way better. Sure, of course, because I'm telling you, tell you, please remember this, you're going to be tested. Forget that and don't worry about it. And then at the end I say, okay, I'd like you to recall as many of the words that I presented to you as possible. And it's, it's a very clear effect. It's called directed forget. You can do this in pigeons. And you do it with matching the sample. You just have a sample, and then you have, uh, let's say, a triangle means remember, and a circle means forget. And when I say it means forget, you're going to get fed anyway. And then you know what I do sometimes? Not me. Peter Riccioli does this. <laughs> I did this. Sometimes I test the anyway, the stupid pigeon, not the experiment. <laughs> and they, they, they're a little better than chance on the ones they thought they weren't getting thought. They were directed to forget. But they don't remember those nearly as well as the ones they were directed to remember. Again, not unlike people, and that shouldn't again surprise us that that would go across species. This, so does anybody understand that term? It's pretty cool too. Then we have this experiment. This is by Inman and Shuttleworth, 1999. It's a classic, really. This experiment, the first thing that's done is the, 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 the uh, pigeons are just trained on a red green. Matching to sample, okay? If red, peck red, green peck. They, they learn that very quickly. Now, then you introduce this. So there's a sample, let's say it's going to be red, and then the animals get a choice. They get a test, they can peck the test key, and then they get red, whoops, get green or they can pick the no test key. If they pick the test key and get it right, they get 10 seconds of access to green. I made that, I made that number up, I'm just, it's something like 10 seconds. It's probably not 10 seconds, it's a little long. If they pick the no test key, they'll get two seconds of access. If they pick the green one here, they get nothing. So the animal gets a choice. They see the sample, and then they get a choice. Do you want to test or not? If they say, it's almost like gambling, right? You know the answer? Well, then take this. Do you not know the answer? Here's, call this the safe key. You'll get something. Note, by the way, it's two seconds because the expected value, a little math here, of this is five seconds of access because there's 50% chance of getting it right. So this is actually less valuable than this, but, you, but it's guaranteed. Okay? Okay. Now, of course, what do you do? Sometimes, when you've got no test, you make them you test anyway. And they're a chance there, which means the pigeons know the state of their own memory. The pigeons are actually making a decision based on 
the contents of their own memory. You would also expect, as you pulled out the rotation interval, the amount of time they, between what's called study and test, that they'd go to the no test key more often, wouldn't you? That's what they did. Pigeons know the contents of their own memory. It's called meta-memory. Just like you do. If I ask you a question, is it hard thing to study in the lab, by the way? Doing meta-memory experiments in the lab with people is really hard. Usually you use semantic stuff, facts about the world. So it's usually things like capitals of countries. And you say, if I asked you what the capital of Pakistan was, if you don't go tell me. If I asked you what the capital of Pakistan was, do you think you know the answer? Do you think if I give you a multiple choice set of items, you would know the answer? And that's what people can go, I think I could do that. So do you think, does anybody here think they could do that? Pakistan too obscure? Okay, how about Afghanistan? Do you think you could do that? If you know it, this isn't any fun. Do you know any capitals at all besides Ottawa? <laughs> Rome. Rome. And of course, Hanoi is the capital of Vietnam. Do you know anything else? Okay, what about, what about, um, what about Belgium? You know, don't say it if you know it. Do you know the capital of Belgium? But if I gave you a multiple choice set of cities, do you think you could get it? Right? Okay. But you don't know it offhand, right, Jesse? You think you do, but you're not sure. See, that, no, that's exactly it, though. That's meta memory. Okay. So, is it Bruges? Put your hand up if you think it's Bruges. Is it Brussels? Is it Utrecht? Is it Amsterdam? Okay, it's Brussels. But it's interesting that, first of all, most people got it right. Secondly, you probably felt like, oh, yeah, I think I would know that. I think I know that. So, that's, that's usually how you do that in people. And it's usually, ge it's, it's somewhat obscure geographic knowledge, so often it's used. Or uh, lists of kings of England. Stuff that you kind of know, but you probably just would choose the no test option typically. Right? So it's cool because you can study it in people. They figured out how to study an animal. And the cool thing about this experiment, Alistair Inman is a zoologist, because Sarah Shuttleworth, my advisor, she, well, she's retired now, but she was a full professor in psychology and in zoology. So half the people in our lab were psychologists and half of us were zoologists, and also all of us were being trained to be both. I got offered a job once in zoology. So I mean, we were all being trained to be both things. So what ends up happening is this guy shows up, he's a pretty hardcore evolutionary biologist, and he wants, he's presenting this as a foraging problem when all the psychologists in the room are like, you're going to study meta-memory and pigeons. And he's like, well, I'm going to do what? I didn't even know what that means. <laughs> so it, was a, and it, it ended up with a really cool paper. Right um, I've actually found that, and I talked about this earlier in the uh, primate, I've shown that we, you can do like, instead of word fragment completion, like in, in, in uh, priming, you can do picture fragment completion. It's an exceedingly complicated experiment, and I'm not going to get into it right now. You can read it if you want. Uh, it's hanging upstairs outside the, um, where all our publications are up there, so you can find this. Um, read it. Have fun. But suffice it to say that you get picture fragment completion in pigeons. And it, it shows the same kind of stuff that you see in word fragment completion of people. It's really long-lasting. It lasts at least, the stuff Craig Keynes and I did in, in the early 2000s 
we showed that it lasted at least 210 seconds. And memory for pictures in pigeons goes away. Of repeated pictures can sometimes go away. Like, did I just see that picture? All in 10 seconds. So that's, it's, again, not unlike implicit or explicit memory. So really, these last, this last slide is just showing you that people that study animal cognition are studying a lot of the same problems people study human cognition. There's also these specialized things for different species that are, well, um, that have certain problems they have to solve. Right. We always have to take account of like what kind of animal you're using. That sort of thing. Questions about that stuff?
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um... Also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.